morning. If you would open your Bibles to First First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. Let's pray. Lord, this this year has been difficult in many ways, strange and even more. Things that seem unexplainable to us. But our hope, our confidence is in that you are seated on your throne and you do whatever you please in the heavens and on earth and no one can stay your hand or say to you, what have you done? There is not a, a single eternal decree that you have ever made that will not come to pass. And the amazement and the mystery and the wonder of that is that all of those have been ordained in such a way that your people will benefit from it and you will be glorified from it. And so, Lord, in, in these days with so much turmoil in our country and so much going on that doesn't seem right, we just pray, Lord, that, that you would give us a confidence not in horses and chariots, not in a party, not even in policies, although all of those things are important. But, Lord, that our greatest hope and our greatest confidence would be in you. And that we can rest in you no matter what happens around us because circumstances do not bring us joy. Christ does. And Christ is unchanging. He's immutable. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the alpha and the omega. And you do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Lord, give us rest and peace and hope and help us to do what we can, but help us, Lord, to not behave sinfully, to not speak sinfully, but to trust in you. Give us solace in Christ. Give us solace in your sovereign hand intervening in every aspect of our life. And may we praise you. Let, let us not stop praising you when the praise team walks off the stage. May we continue to praise you in every aspect of our life. Bless your people so that we might honor you, Lord, in all that we say and do. Pour out your grace and mercy upon us. Hedge our ways, hedge our thoughts, and hedge our minds, hedge our hearts. Help us, Lord, to, to pursue you, to seek you first, and to trust that you will add everything that we need to our life. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us, and we thank you for that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Peter 3, uh, last Sunday, we were looking at the purpose of the conscience. And we... We looked at how every person has the moral law of God written on their heart. 
We, we looked at how the conscience can be misinformed. Um, the conscience can actually be trained to oppose God's moral law. And we looked at how through ignoring and disobeying the conscience, how that leads to a very dangerous conscience that is seared. And there's, we, we talked about the different ways that a conscience can be seared. There's, there's numerous ways that, that a conscience can be seared. There's more popular ways that co a conscience can be seared. And we live in a culture that just guilt is, guilt is evil. Guilt is evil. Um, when actually God gives guilt as a blessing for us to understand our sinfulness, to, to, for us to flee the path that we're on that's causing sin. But our culture uh, declares guilt as a bad thing and does everything that it can to remove guilt in an unbiblical, harmful way. We learned last week that the conscience can only function the way it is created to function when it is properly taught and informed by the Word of God. Um, because no matter, no matter what happens in our life, um, even if you were raised in church from, from birth, um, because we're fallen and because we have a sin nature, there, there are things going on in our life, right, where we are misinforming our conscience and we are opposing the moral law of God because we seek to suppress guilt too. Romans 1 tells us we, we seek our entire life until the new birth, we seek to suppress our unrighteousness um, by suppressing the righteousness of God. And so the only way to have our, our conscience function the way our conscience was made to function is by informing it and having our conscience taught and instructed by the Word of God. And the only way to have a true, clear, and good conscience, the only way to really have a true, good, clear conscience, because guess what? No matter how much we obey, we will not obey perfectly. Amen? If you've been a Christian more than a month, you understand that. Actually, more than the day, but right? So the only way to really be able to put your head on your pillow at night and sleep well with a clear conscience is to know that all of your sins and all of your guilt have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ and that you now have a righteous standing before God because of his atoning blood and imputed righteousness on our account. Now, this morning we pick up again in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to be concentrating more in verse 16, but I want to keep us in the context of this passage. It says this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive 
in the Spirit. Well, there's, there's two things in this passage. Um, we've dealt with just about everything leading up to verse uh, 16. But there's this rhetorical question that Peter asked in verse 13 that we've discussed where he says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, this is not a normal occurrence. Because every heart, every person that's ever been born has the moral law of God written on their heart, right? And so it takes a period of time for that conscience to be misinformed and even seared for someone to suffer for doing good. So it's a rhetorical question. It's not the norm. And Peter says in verse 14, but even if, like even if this occurs, it shouldn't. It's not normal. It's certainly not God's design, but even if you should, and then he continues. And so down in verse 16, he says, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so, you know, I, I really couldn't get past this. I thought, this needs to be answered. N number one, when I'm studying, I'm answering questions for myself. And, and, I, and I think that if, if a question arises in my mind, it's probably arising in your minds and your hearts as well. So I, I want to address this question at the very beginning. What does it take for people to suffer for doing good? Generally speaking, what, what does it take for people to suffer for doing good? In other words, what kind of person slanders or persecutes someone for doing good? We, we talked last Sunday about having a conscience that is trained against God's moral law, right? We, they're, they're, consciences are trained against God's moral law. We talked last week about how sinning against the conscience is the way a conscience is seared. So the way we sear our conscience, in other words, we turn the volume down on our conscience so that we don't hear it anymore, or we create a calloused conscience so that our nerve endings aren't at the surface, right, to feel the pain, When we, we, we sear our conscience by sinning against it, by not heeding it, by not listening to it. So persecution comes upon people who do good by a society that have had their consciences trained against God's moral law. That's how we get to a point in which in a society there is a, maybe a majority that are persecuting or slandering people who are doing good. It takes the training of a conscience against God's moral law. It takes people becoming like the people described in Isaiah 5, 20 through 23. God says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. 
It takes a society that is well down the slope of Romans 1. In verse 22, it says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God continues to give them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Right, Isaiah we go back to Isaiah, to do what ought not to be done, to call good evil and evil good, to call bitter sweet and to call sweet bitter. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, envy murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, slanderers. We'll come back to that. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Let me, let me, let me insert something that I don't have in my notes. Um, these things have been going on in this country for, for decades. I mean, my, my grandparents, if they were alive right now, they, they would not comprehend what's going on in our country. But, but here's the thing. We have to be careful how we, how we react. We have to be careful not to overreact. We have to be careful that as we're looking at this list, that we're not just pointing fingers, but that we're looking at our own hearts and our own minds and making sure that we're not committing these sins as well, right? And, and we also, as we see the culture going this way, we need to be preparing ourselves to suffer for the glory of Jesus. Right? Because most of the time I think we're, we're, we're complaining about not having comfort. I'm guilty. Anybody else guilty about that? Complaining about not having the comforts that I want. When really comforts are so fleeting and never give me the pleasure that I want. Only Jesus can give me that pleasure. And so I need to stop striving for the comforts of this world and strive more for the presence of Christ or the felt presence of Christ in my life. So we, it should be alarming. It should be. But then at the same time, if we understand the depravity of the heart, there go I except by the grace of God. Right? There, there's still a world out there, even though we don't like how it's going, there's a world out there that if they only stood, un, only understood the treasure of Jesus and what they're missing, they would change. And so we have to be careful to not become a people that don't want to be tainted by the dirtiness of the world and be people that are willing to go get dirty for the glory of Jesus and for the evangelization of the people that God has put in your life. We, we live in a culture right now, our culture is going down the slope 
that is fertile soil for Christian suffering, for doing good. It takes a culture that is guilty of the sins that Paul lists in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. He says, but understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now, we read that passage and we think about our culture, I think. I think immediately we think about our culture. But here's the greatest danger in this passage that Peter says. Paul, or Paul. Paul's writing Timothy. This is the greatest danger here. The greatest danger is that he's not speaking here of the culture. He's speaking of people in the church. Because he says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. We're never commanded to avoid the lost, right? We are commanded to, to discipline those within the church that aren't obeying the Lord and are living in, in unrepentance. It takes a society that has seared their conscience so much they no longer have the ability to blush like the people of Jeremiah's day. It takes a society that is so deep in sin that they no longer seek to cover it up. They actually approve of the sinful behavior. It takes a society that not only sins, but they boast in their sinfulness. In other words, go, the, a culture that when they go deeper in sin, it, it seems to be a notch in their belt. Seems to be something that they brag about. Something that needs a parade, right? They need to parade this, this sinfulness, this openness in sin. And this is the kind of society in which a person or people will suffer for doing good. Now, you, you can answer for yourself whether or not you think we live in that kind of society. But I think if, if the answer is yes in your heart and in your mind, here's the question you have to ask yourself. Will I seek the comfort and withdraw or will I engage and find Christ worthy to suffer? Because I, I understand <laughs> we can become we can become angry at society and we can become angry at the the just the depravity that we see and how it's paraded and how it's boasted in. We, we can become angry. Right. Amen. And, and and we can we can say, you know what, I've had enough. I, I've had enough. I, I don't even I'm not even going to engage with the world anymore. I'm not even going to risk getting dirt on my clothes from the world. But we have to remember that this very society that I'm talking about is the exact society that Jesus lived in and walked among and ministered to. 
It's the same kind of society that ultimately nailed him to the cross. It's a society that if we get in the flesh, and, and maybe we've given into this already, we, we want to call fire down from heaven. <laughs> right? But we, we'll be tempted to withdraw from this society. We'll be, we'll be tempted to react sinfully to this kind of society. And we'll justify our withdrawal with reasonings of not wanting to be tainted by society's sins. But here's what we forget. Jesus tells us, tells us this. We are, we are not of the world, but we are in the world. And as we are in the world and ministering to the world, we are to minister in a specific way with a specific attitude and behavior, right? And so Peter tells us here, and we're going to pick up there. We know what kind of society persecutes people for doing good. It takes a society that's gone down the slope of Romans 1. It takes a society that seared their conscience and trained their conscience against the moral law of God. How do we respond? We respond by continuing to engage society with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have a certain behavior and attitude towards them in are engaging. He says in verse, uh, let, me, let me back up to verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This gentleness and respect. How often are we tempted to respond in other ways other than gentleness and respect, right? I am. Why, why are we commanded to respond to our critics and persecutors with gentleness and respect? Why can't we respond with anger and hatred, right? Isn't that what we feel sometimes? We feel anger and we feel hatred towards others who don't agree with us or who are causing problems. Why can't we respond that way? Why can't we return slander for slander? Why can't we return hatred for hatred? Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. Listen, but here's why. Here's, here's one reason why, because we're not our own. We've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and therefore we are His and he is ours, and we're to obey him, right? And, and, and because now, as a Christian who's been born again, right, we have the Holy Spirit living within us, and he bears fruit in our life. And that fruit is gentleness, among many other things. And so the way we express our, our love, not only the way we express our difference from the world, but the way we express to the world that we love God 
is through obeying God's command to be counterculture so that people see a difference in us and ask us for the hope that we have. Why do you have this hope, right? If we're acting like them, they don't have anything to question us about. we'll, We'll be given no platform for them to step into our life and for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ if we're acting the way they act. But God calls us to act counterculture in order for them to be curious while we're behaving the way we behave. And they say, hey, what? I want to know what's different about you than all the other people I see reacting right now. God's ways are always counterculture because the culture thinks they're wise when in reality they've become fools. His ways are above the culture's ways. God's ways are wise, they are righteous, they are holy. And, and, and I want us to, to think about this. Hear me when I say this. Our obedience to someone, our obedience to someone over another expresses that the one you obey holds greater value to you. You can put that in every relationship in your life. What's, what's, the, what's the greatest Love that I have as as a a partner is my wife, right? The covenant that I made with her. So I obey that covenant over every other opportunity that may come, and it shows that my love for my wife is greater than anyone else that may come along. My love for the Lord, let's take it higher. My love for the Lord is expressed by me obeying him over every other temptation to obey that comes along. So our obedience to someone over another expresses that the one you obey holds greater to value, greater value to you. You see how, I mean, Christian living is important. It's a constant testifying of who you treasure, of who I treasure. It expresses greater loyalty from you, and it shows that you treasure one over the other. So when we live counter-culture, and that counter is obedience to God, it shows that we are His, and His people treasure Him above all else. Amen? Now, what about failure? I feel like I have to address that. Do we always... Do we always express that God is our greatest treasure? Absolutely not. But there's not only the the immediate expression of behavior in the Christian life, there's the secondary expression of obedience in the Christian life, right? So what do we do if we sin against God? We confess it, right? We repent of that. We seek reconciliation through that. The world doesn't do that. Right. So even when we fail and disobey, we still have an opportunity to have a testimony that treasures God above all else because we seek reconciliation and we seek repentance and we seek improvement in our behavior. And that shows that we are his. Some of the greatest opportunities that God has given me to to have a testimony of loving God more than others is where I have failed in the eyes of 
people that I know, and God has given me the opportunity to go to them and say, you know what? What I did the other day was wrong. It was sinful. I shouldn't have done it. God has called me to live a different way. The gospel has called me to live a different way. God has called me to treasure him above my response. And I want to say sorry, and I want to ask your forgiveness. And here's the thing. They, they didn't even, sometimes didn't even remember really what happened because it was so natural to them. They didn't think it was that much different because that's how they responded. But when I did that, they were caught in awe that someone would actually do that. So it's not always the obedience. The, if, we, if we fail in obedience, our, our opportunity doesn't end there. We still have an opportunity to show that we treasure God above all through that follow-up, which is repentance and reconciliation and sought forgiveness. Amen? Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Listen to this. If anyone is caught in a transgression, if, in, if you know someone who's sinning, if you know them, you, you who are spiritual should restore him, listen to this, in a spirit of gentleness in a spirit of gentleness lest you too be tempted so so here's the thing we have been as christians we have been called to restore relationships with god through the preaching or sharing of the gospel of jesus christ amen come on amen We, we have been called as ambassadors of Jesus Christ to persuade people to be reconciled to God. We, we, we are not missionless people. We have a mission in our life. We don't have to cross the sea to be a missionary. We may just have to cross the street. But we've been called. We have a mission. Once you're born again, you have a mission from God. And that's to make his name known among everyone you know that God gives you opportunity to. But we see here when Paul says here in chapter 6 verse 1 of Galatians, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The path here to restoration, the path to restoration is gentleness. You ever been in an argument with somebody and it get heated? It never calms down when we're not gentle, does it? That's why the Bible says a soft answer does what? My kids know this verse. A, a soft answer turns away wrath. Because the path to restoration is through the spirit of gentleness. Now, there's more to restoration than just being gentle, but the attitude that leads to restoration is gentleness. I mean, I, I can think of arguments that I've been in and, and maybe heated discussions, and the way it calms down the quickest is, is, you know what? I apologize for getting overly passionate or overly excited or maybe maybe even angry. I apologize. Let's, let's, let's handle this a different way. And it immediately, like, steps down 20 levels. Right? You guys have experienced that. 
The attitude that leads to restoration is gentleness, not violence, which is actually the opposite of gentleness. Violence is. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. I mean, listen, we need to check our hearts if there's somebody that we know that we don't desire them to repent of their sins and be restored and reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to check our hearts. And so we see here again, Paul writing to Timothy that the path of the Christian is patience and gentleness and we correct our opponents or we defend our beliefs with gentleness. Why? Why? Because the, it is the path that God uses to grant repentance to the hearers of gospel. Now, not only does gentleness and respect keep us on the path of restoration, not only is it a means that God uses to bring people to repentance, but it also, we're told in 1 Peter, that it puts them to shame. Obedience to God shames those who slander us. It says here in verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. An additional aspect of obedience to Christ and handling confrontations with gentleness and respect and patience. An additional aspect of the process that may bring a person to repentance is that it will bring a person's slander of us to their own personal shame. Listen, we need to understand this. Truth always wins. Truth always wins. It may not win in the timetable that we desire, but it will triumph. It will be victorious every single time. There will be a day in which all of God's truth is vindicated in the minds of every person that has ever lived, whether they like it or not. But in the meantime, in the meantime, God has ordained that if we live by the same truth that we profess to believe, it will put to shame the false accusations and slander that Christians receive because of their faith in Christ. When we receive slander and we're maligned with slander and we receive it and yet we do not retaliate with anger, it can cause a confusion in the hearts and minds of the slander. And dear friends, there, there is testimony of this throughout the history of Christianity, that those who have suffered at the hands of their persecutors and handled it with gentleness and respect and, and, and with a heart to, to glorify their Lord Jesus Christ, that it has impacted the persecutors greatly, and many of them have come to Christ because of the way the Christians handled the persecution and the slander. It can cause confusion in the hearts and minds of the slanderer, whether they verbally express it or not. In their hearts and minds, they feel the weight of their false accusations, and they feel the guilt of their offenses, and it actually heaps coals on their head. 
And God may use this in their life to soften them to, very, to the very truths they used to malign. Think about the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul. I mean, he, he was persecuting and having Christians put to death. He was going to the leadership and going, give me a letter to go here and I'll shut them down. I'll put them in prison. I'll have people, I'll get the crowd stirred and I'll have them stone them to death. And then look at who was one of the greatest apostles. The Apostle Paul. So our handling being slandered and persecuted with gentleness and respect will put shame. They may not express it ever to you. They may not ever say it verbally out loud. But dear friends, there's a lot of conversations that go on within the head when you're alone with yourself. And when they get alone, they're going to feel the guilt. And they're going to be thinking about the way you responded and how much different it is than the way that they would respond and it's going to bring guilt on their hearts. And when we act that way, it gives us a clear conscience towards our enemies. Not only towards God, but towards our enemies. Paul says in Acts 24, 16, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Are we doing that? Are we, taking, are we going to great lengths to make sure that we have a clear conscience, not only before God, but before man? How can you do this? Obedience to God makes your relational interactions the best for them, you, and the glory of God. I, I, hear me on that. Because that's not the world's message. Right? The world is redefining love, redefining patience, redefining all these words in a cultural, sinful way. But when we obey God, when we are pursuing the path of obedience to God in every aspect of our life, it makes our relationships be in such a way that it's the best for them, it's the best for us, and it's for the glory of God. Every time. And so if we're seeking to have relationships that way, if we're seeking to live that way, we can have a clear conscience not only before God, but before man. That doesn't mean they'll like what we believe, but we can have a clear conscience because we haven't sinned against them as defined by God, not them. We fail often, but the pursuit of this, while depending on the work of Christ, allows us to have a clear conscience before God and man. Listen, there's nothing we can do that's not tainted with sin. Amen? Nothing. Nothing. But as we pursue obedience to God, here, here's, here's kind of the paradox, right? As we pursue obedience to God, we are all the while depending upon, trusting in, and rejoicing in the atoning blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ that keeps, not only gave us, but keeps our good standing before God. And therefore, we'll never lose our good standing, and we can pursue obedience knowing that it's tainted with sin because we're fallen, but we can't lose our good standing with God because it was given to us in the first place and it is kept by the perfect one, Jesus Christ, and his work. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of the Christian life 
is to behave in such a way that expresses love. Biblical love. Not worldly love, biblical love. And when we do this, it allows for a clear and good conscience. So living with a clear conscience allows us to, to only have to defend our beliefs rather than sinful behavior, right? If we're, if we're living in such a way that we're pursuing obedience to God, we can live with a clear conscience and we don't have to defend our behavior. We, we may have to defend our beliefs, but we don't have to defend our behavior because we're pursuing a life that is in obedience to Jesus Christ. And that is how we live with a good conscience. And that's why we suffer slander and persecution and respond to it in gentleness and respect. Not only because God calls us to that, but it's also the way God has ordained that when we behave in that way, it triggers in them a, a curiosity and even an envy of how we can live so counterculture, and it causes them to come and ask us for the reason, for the hope that we have. And it is also the, the way God has ordained the path to restoration be through gentleness. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. We thank you for your patience with us. Oh, how patient you are with us. You're redeemed. We fail so often. We fall short so often. We, we give in to, to the temptations of the world, to the comforts of the world so often. Every one of us do. Oh, how grateful we are that our standing with you is not based on us or what we've done, but on the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to pursue obedience. And as we pursue obedience, may we not be trusting in our obedience, but only trusting in the work and person of Christ. Help us to make a difference in this world by honoring you. Help us to live in such a way, Lord. I pray that we would be living in such a way that people would actually ask us for the reason that we have hope. And I think the darker the times get, the more opportunity we have to live that way and for it to stand out to the unbelieving world. Flood us with opportunities to share the glories of Christ and his gospel. We pray your blessings on us now. In Christ's name, amen.